Welcome to the Federation of Asian Canadian Lawyers, FACL British Columbia podcast. We are a diverse coalition of Asian Canadian legal professionals. We promote equity, justice, and opportunity for Asian Canadian legal professionals and the community. We foster advocacy, community involvement, legal scholarship, and professional development. The purpose of this podcast highlights the diverse and unique members of our community. We hope you enjoy our podcast. Aaron Baines is a partner in Toronto at Aird and Burles LLP, where he practices domestic and international business law. He comes from Surrey, BC. He holds various board and senior executive roles in nonprofit organizations across the city of Toronto, including the president of the St. George's Society Toronto and South Asian Bar Association of Toronto. He's also on the board for the Canadian International Council and the Breakfast of Champions Charity for Sick Kids Hospital. Aaron attended UBC for undergrad and went to Queen's for his JD. He then went on to obtain a Master's of Laws in International and European Business Law from the Université Jean Moulin Lyon-Trois. Aaron, like our former podcast guest Nerissa Yan, was recently named as one of Canada's top 25 most influential lawyers in 2020 by Canadian Lawyer Magazine in the Young Influencer category. He was also recognized as a 2020 precedent setter by Precedent Magazine, which recognizes six outstanding young Toronto lawyers who have shown excellence and leadership in their practice and their community. Aaron, it is a pleasure to have you today. So Aaron, give us your favorite restaurant recommendation in your hometown in Surrey and explain why. Well, that would have to be a Thai one, the restaurant my family owns. Oh, nice. <laughs> the Ricky's All Day Grill, a franchise in Central City. My favorite restaurant is the Korean barbecue restaurant next to the Wendy's, which is amazing. My <laughs> go-to hangover cure spot. Do you have a favorite dish there? or Everything, yeah. Everything, yeah. okay. Wow, so for anyone listening, must try. <laughs> Diving into questions about your practice, I know that you are involved with a number of boards. Drawing from your experiences with SABA, the South Asian Bar Association, as well as the St. George's Society, what do you think are some important traits that a future president or a leader of any board should have? Yeah, I think that's a great question. The reality is that the answer is the same and different for both. The same answer is that you have to be able to listen very well and different because you're listening for different things. Mm -hmm. So at Saba, a very, I would say, sophisticated board that has a lot of brilliant minds and hardworking people on it, you can imagine lots of different views on a variety of things. We have a very diverse board in terms of practice. So often finding consensus is the most important thing. And mm -hmm. I think a leader that can find consensus on difficult topics is a truly good leader. My goal was to always have consensus on major decisions. Rarely rely on majority voting and we were successful in doing so now you did that by listening to what were the board's needs what were the members needs and what were the various issues and voices being raised at the board meetings slightly same thing but different for st george's a very very old organization 186 years old and in that instance we were not so much looking at building consensus because that was already there, but really listening to try and find ideas and elicit people's strengths out of them. Listening to the subtle hints of what could they do for the organization and drawing those things out of them and making them better board members, just generally speaking. So SABA is the equivalent of FACO for South Asian members of the bar. It is a North American organization with SABA North America and chapters across the US and in Canada. We have a chapter in Toronto. Edmonton, Calgary, and in BC, and they're building one in Ottawa. Mm -hmm. Saba 
Toronto is a very large chapter. We have over 850 members and we have four pillars that we focus on. One of them is networking and developing skills. The second one is CPD training and career development training. The third pillar is advocacy. And finally, the last one is pro bono initiatives. St. George is the oldest charity in Toronto, and it was founded by a group of British individuals at a time when they were supporting immigrants from Britain to settle here. The ethos of the organization is supporting those who are most in need in mm-hmm. the city of Toronto. And over the last 186 years has been a support network for individuals in Toronto and mostly by donating to a variety of charities on the annual basis. I see. It's clear that you juggle all these complete competing obligations on different boards. How did you narrow it down to these organizations? So most of the organizations that I work with all happened by happenstance, every single one of them, in fact. So I first began on board work at the Canadian International Council. I'm still on the Toronto board uh, think tank and global affairs organization because Ron Clark from Airden Burles was a former president. They held an event at Airden Burles when I was a student once. And I thought, this is cool. I love international relations. It's my way to stay in tune with politics. I joined because they were looking for people. Then same with Saba. Ron Chowdhury was the founding member of Saba, asked me to volunteer with them when I was a student. And as soon as I became an associate, I joined the board mm-hmm. and then rose up through the ranks of doing various executive positions before becoming the president. St. George's was kind of another organic connection. I knew somebody through another board mm-hmm. who then saw my skills on those boards and asked if I would be willing to come to St. George's. Again, I really didn't think I would be president the same as Sava. I had said no, but by a variety of things happening, you work more on a board, you get more involved, end up asking you to take on these leadership roles, especially for lawyers. Mm-hmm. So most of them always happen because of some particular organic connection. I will say the theme in in my work, though, generally on non-billable or non-profit side of work is I always dedicate time to child care, pediatric care. If I can find a local hospital that needs support, Mm. and I've done so through Breakfast of Champions in the past, and this year I participated in the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society of Canada's a campaign called Man and Woman of the Year. I raised over $115,000 with our team. And the city of Toronto competitors raised uh, over $450,000. In total, all three cities, Halifax, Montreal, and Toronto, raised $1.05 million. So that's kind of one area I always focus on. The other one is supporting diversity and, and confronting racism, which is where kind of Saba comes in. I also noticed on your website biography that you're actually on the firm's diversity and inclusion committee. And so that leads us to our next question. From your commitments outside of work, as well as your Twitter, it's clear that you're committed to advocating for diversity and inclusion. And I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about what you hope to achieve or see improve in the legal profession with respect to these areas. Yeah, I mean, with the legal profession, I just want to see more color, (laughs) you know, (laughs) everywhere. Um, I personally, the the listeners, Fiona can see me, but you can't, it's it's not always easy to know that I'm South Asian. Right now I'm kind of tan because I've been spending a lot of time hiking in the summer, but it's, it's hard to tell. And so as a result, I've in some instances either bypassed or, or not really been aware always of the racial differences in a room. And I grew up in a very multicultural neighborhood in Surrey, BC. My friends were all span of Filipinos, Koreans, South Asian, Caucasian. 
and very fortunate to grow up in an environment like that. So when I came to Toronto, it wasn't top of my mind that diversity was something that we needed to be addressed. Also in BC, you do have a little bit of limited diversity between East Asians, South Asians, and, and Caucasians more mm-hmm. than others. But it's not maybe as pronounced of an issue, although it certainly exists. It's just not necessarily in your eyes all the time. When I was in Toronto, a friend of mine at the law firm, he used to say that we need to be more diverse. And I couldn't really understand him until one day I was walking to work at seven in the morning and I passed by IQ, and people in Toronto will know it's on Bain Wellington, a little breakfast or a lunch spot, healthy bowls and whatnot, um, otherwise known as rabbit food. But it, <laughs> it was interesting because I looked into through the glass at the restaurant, and it was all white men. And what we would otherwise refer to as straight, able-bodied white men, tall, mm-hmm. same haircut as me, slicked back to the side. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wow, that room in there that I'm standing on the other side of the glass looks exceptionally different than mm-hmm. me. And if that's the hub of finance and this is what it looks like in the morning, that's an issue. And so making it look more like the people on the other side of the glass is exceptionally important. It's important for access to justice, but also for access to improving one's livelihood, being able to get into the professional jobs, the finance jobs, and the things that actually allow you to start building greater economic power, not just voting power and base power, but also the power to improve your life and the lives of those that come after you. Mm-hmm, definitely. And I think this is something that FACL really stands for as well. This is one of the areas in which you could see that FACL and Saba have uh, overlapping initiatives. And I definitely hope that we'll be able to see room for more collaboration between the two organizations. Now, moving on to your practice and your history, as I mentioned earlier, Aaron is one of the winners for the Top 25 Influential Lawyers Award, as well as the 2020 Precedent Setter Award. How did you feel when you won these two awards? And what have you done so far in your career that you think has served you well and led you to these two achievements? I have no idea what other (laughs) people were gracious enough to think that I was deserving of these awards, and I'm honored and humbled by that. But I felt ecstatic, obviously. I thought it was pretty cool, mostly because I think it was really nice for my parents, (laughs) Uh, because to them, it was pretty amazing. There's a son from Surrey, BC. My mom's from England. My dad, born in India, grew up in the Philippines until he was about 10 and then moved to BC, Mm -hmm. you know, moved to Barnston Island, an island in Surrey where... Uh, there's mainly dairy farms and we worked on a dairy farm until they worked on a sawmill until he ended up getting his job in the main city and has been working in that profession since so I think it was pretty cool for them and uh, Mm -hmm. pretty cool for me too it's really great to see one's work reflected in the eyes of others sometimes I I can't really say what I've done that would have got me there other than I think that I always dedicated a hundred percent to what I was doing. And I'm very, very strongly believe in the ethos that you have to be always giving back. It's Mm -hmm. part of my religious faith as a Sikh and also just part of my general humanity. Mm -hmm. I don't think you need to be religious to know that you need to help other people. Forever and ever, it's always been a part of my ethos. When I was in BC, we helped at the local temple we would feed the homeless once a month at the living room shelter in West in East Hastings and then on the corner of Hastings and Maine. It'd been kind of something built into my membrane and I found that, okay, how can I do this as a lawyer? I realized that by joining these boards, there are opportunities for you to really make a difference in the lives of others. You can support legal aid clinics, 
You can support diversity on the bench by lobbying and meeting with the government and changing the way justice is framed and shaped. You can also support young lawyers by just meeting with them for a coffee and talking through what you experienced, how you got to where you are, and giving them the hope that there is certainly a way to advance in the career in the way that they hope to. Mm-hmm, definitely. So going back to your answer earlier, I noticed that you mentioned giving 100% to everything that you do. And something else that I want to talk about today was your hire back, actually. So I know that you were initially not hired back and then somehow made the firm change its mind. So I was wondering if you could talk about your experience, how you gave 100% or even more <laughs> from what you did to change the outcome and how you first felt. <laughs> For sure. Although I've blacked that period of my mind out for a year. No, I'm kidding. It, it was very stressful and, and I try very hard now to tell other people how they should not take those things that seriously. Mm-hmm. I'll just say this 30 second snippet before I go into the story, but students call me all the time and ask me for advice about OCIs and whatnot. And I always give them the advice that the tips and tricks of trying to shape your resume and your CV and or your cover letter rather. But the one thing I tell them at the end is always just remember, this is an interview for a summer position that is two and a half months for then a 10 month articling position. So in total one year, right? of what may be a 50-year career. That's like 2%. That's that's nothing. Yes, you need to get hired. You want to get a job and have a solid landing. But what's more important is to live with purpose and happiness. And if you're doing this solely for the purpose of a job, you will be exceptionally unhappy and time cannot be replaced. And time spent unhappy is the worst time that cannot be replaced. And Mm -hmm. I try and tell people, just contextualize it, remember. The other thing is everybody I knew who didn't get an OCI position was for a reason. They shouldn't have been interviewing at that business law firm anyways because it was nowhere near what they wanted to do in life. (laughs) But they did it because everybody else at school was doing it. Mm -hmm. And they all got jobs at the end. The path between the no job to job is sometimes a very long one. But trust me, it always works out. And you just have to be ready, willing, and able to pounce on opportunities that are the right ones and be able to shape that. And yes, it may mean, you know, not the best, the greatest thing, but I really caution people, do not spend more than a minimal amount of time doing something that makes you unhappy because you just can't get that time back. It's impossible. If you're unhappy, you're probably not learning. So kind of this brings us to the story. I'm still at Edinburgh, but I was articling. And this kid from Surrey, BC, I had never been in an office tower for work. (laughs) I didn't really know the game and I didn't really understand what was the importance of the hire back and all this stuff. So what did I do? I did the work I enjoyed, which meant I worked for lots of different people and lots of interesting files. But it never meant that I was getting quote unquote champions on my side to do the hire back process. Mm -hmm. I did meet one champion who continues to be a champion to this day of mine, Tony Joya. And I work with him since then as his junior, as his partner now, but most importantly, as a friend. He, I, I truly value the relationship I have with him as if he was an older brother at times. And certainly maybe age, he might be scolding me like a father sometimes, but, but certainly <laughs> learning and really appreciating the amount of uh, work he put into our relationship. So I meet Tony Joy. I start doing some work for him a little bit and hire back rolls around the last week of May mm-hmm. and I don't get hired back. And I'm obviously devastated. And I'm thinking, shoot, (laughs) the whole purpose of coming here to Toronto to do this was to get hired back. And so I'm really bummed out. And I talked to Tony and he goes, I don't know what happened. I thought we'd be able to hire you. But, But at the time, we were also working on a very large transaction. And 
Tony's other junior had left the firm to go in-house. So it was just him, a senior partner, and me, an article student, working on a $250 million credit facility for a company in the fintech sector. And it had all kinds of things, $50 million accordions, which meant it could get bigger and smaller. Like it was a very complicated uh, mm-hmm. transaction. And I was the only guy working with him. And so he convinced the firm that he needed me to stay till closing. Yeah. So what began as a one-week contract ended up lasting for almost two months. I was every week being told whether I would be coming back on Monday. You can imagine that's very <laughs> stressful and yeah. not pleasant. Towards the end of it, we hadn't quite closed yet. It was August. And I finally went into Tony's office on a Wednesday night and I said, Tony, like, we got to do something here because Mm -hmm. if we don't, the students are going to come back as associates and they're just going to do the closing for you. And then that's it. And Tony said, "Okay, well, we need to see who else is willing to support us. And I, at the time, had very good relationships with some other senior partners at the firm, one of whom I was meeting for lunch the next day. I kind of just said to them, hey, I really, this, this, I need you to tell executive that they made a mistake and need to hire me back. And he was <laughs> like, who are you again? <laughs> and I was like, remember your assistant set up lunch for us because you thanked me for this file. He's like, oh yeah, sure. And then, but then once I told him that Tony and some other people were on board, he thought, okay, well, those people represent a material portion of the firm. They must be smart in their thoughts. So he said, okay, sure. And someone else also said yes. And now it became a gang of kind of three to four. And mm-hmm. that was Wednesday. So then Thursday comes around and Tony tells me, okay, you have to answer a few questions. We want to make sure you're sure. Mm-hmm. And one of the questions was, will you stay? Because you can't leave and it's going to make us look bad. I said, no, I'm not going anywhere. And they <laughs> said, are you willing to work the hours? I said, you already know I'm willing to work the hours. I worked them before, yeah. but you also know then and now I'm single. And I said, I might have to go on a date in the middle of the evening. I was very, very candid with Tony. And I said, yeah. I might leave for a few hours, but you know I'm going to come back and get the work exactly. done. He said, yeah, okay. And he said, the last question is, do you really want this? He said, I wouldn't be standing here if I didn't really want this. I said, I want it. And and you know I'm dedicated. And six years later, I'm still working with him. Mm -hmm. We'll work as a team together to bring in files and service his his book of business. Then that happens. The head of recruitment gets a call to his much surprise, I think, from a senior partner saying, we we need to hire this guy. The new managing partner at the time ended up, apparently it was one of his first decisions. But yeah, he returned the decision and had me hired. And it was funny because they told me a Friday afternoon, I think before the weekend, but I didn't sign the paperwork or something until Monday. Tony was like, don't say anything until you sign the paperwork. But I called my granddad because everyone here was stressing about the fact that I didn't get this job and they didn't really understand what it meant, but they knew that it was making me stressed. And so I called him. I said, you can go to sleep tonight. Don't worry. I got a job in Toronto. (laughs) And the rest is history. And funny enough, you know, like I think it really showed a lot of dedication. One of the people that was involved in the process said, the fact that you showed up every day was such a big sign to us that you wanted this. Like, who else would have done that? They're like, you were not hired. It's like, you yeah. probably went else would have just left. But you still came in and wore a suit, did your work, and got the deal closed. And we closed the deal on September 5th, um, 2015. Well, you still and, remember the date. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, well, we do a lot of work still for the clients, so the credit facility okay, is still... Uh, yeah. you know, I only got a week or so off, so I didn't really get the fun employment this summer that people had. Since then, it really built a great relationship with that team with the managing partner steve is an amazing managing partner honestly can't think of anyone better to be leading the firm over the last five six years he's very very thoughtful very appreciative and obviously made a decision that impacted my life significantly Mm -hmm. yeah for sure just hearing
between that is quite the roller coaster. From personal experience, I was not hired back, so I could definitely resonate with the ups and downs with the roller coaster of emotions that ensued. I'm very happy the outcome turned out to be the way that you wanted to. And I gather that one of the aspects that really changed that decision was, first of all, the strong relationship that you had built with the firm. And second of all, it was definitely your work ethic. And don't get me wrong, they've definitely made their dividends on the return. Right? <laughs> Nowadays, I might not work as much in the billable I've blend of, you know, 1700 billable, a couple of three to 400 non-billable. But in the first few years, I was working a lot, like mm, anybody in, like those, in those firms, 2000 plus hours and stuff like that. You really have to want it. And I try and tell people since then that the two things that worked for me, but is that I really loved the people I worked with mm-hmm. and I really enjoyed the work I was doing. I never thought I would ever be doing that work. I had no idea that that type of law even existed. It was fortunate that I enjoy the work. It's interesting work and that I really love the people I work with. And I always tell people, you have to have those two things wherever you're working. And and that's what got me hired back. I was dedicated about the work that I do. And I had built relationships with people who were invested in the outcome of my career. It wasn't just a number that this is just some student one of however many, right? It was a relationship. People cared enough to want to see that happen. And law is a stressful practice. So of course, if you're going to be working those long hours, you would really want to hope that you would be working with people that you enjoy. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. (laughs) That leads me to my next question. So you've talked a bit about your career on Bay Street and you're a partner now. I was wondering if you have any words of advice for people in BC one day hoping to make the jump to Toronto or maybe even coming back to Vancouver. Build relationships. Relationships mm. will get doors open for you that you never expected before. But right now, I actually would also say the market is so hot. Anybody who wants to work on Bay Street and has the wherewithal and like the basic educational levels and things like that in training right. can get an interview right now. Right. It's very, very, very busy. The market is super busy. We're losing a lot of lawyers to American law firms because of the substantial amount that they're willing to pay. The timing is right right now for those wanting to make that shift. The other thing is relationships for sure. And often demonstrating why you want to go. It's easier to do that move earlier in your career than later in your career. Because unless in fact you are moving to Toronto permanently, People want to know because they invest lots of time. We have juniors. I spend hours and hours and hours working with them. Those are hours I'm not billing. They're probably working with three to five lawyers who are easily spending 10 hours a week training this person. So even at an average rate, that's $5,000 a week. That turns into $20,000 a month over articling, right? That's $200,000 right there. It's just not including rent and all the other things that you're investing. So you invest a lot of money in juniors Mm -hmm. and that's just base level. It might even be more than that. I'd say it's probably two to $500,000 per person investment in the first few years. We want to make sure that they're going to stay. If they're early in their career, we kind of know that they might be able to move. Whereas if they're late in their career, they usually want to show us that they're going to be staying there. It's obviously also easier to go to firms that have national offices at various places, especially if you want to move back to Vancouver later on. Mm -hmm. You still have to be able to kind of prove a need in the other firm. Mm -hmm. The other thing, I'm going to caveat it because all of this is to say that you're putting the decision of wanting to move to Toronto or Vancouver before the decision about what you want to do. But working in transferable practices is obviously one that will allow you to move more easily. So for example, uh, corporate law transactions, banking law transactions, litigation at appellate level obviously is very transferable. Same as trial level too, but you'll have to realize the rules of civil procedure will be different. Mm -hmm. But those practices generally involve the same laws other than Quebec across the board. Whereas if you're an employment lawyer, 
or a construction lawyer, you're tied to the construction statute of your jurisdiction. And especially with things like employment law, where common law might be different by province. Mm -hmm. In those instances, you're focusing on learning a lot of a very specific thing. And that's probably not as transferable to another jurisdiction. So that's something to keep in mind. But again, I would never tell somebody to practice a specific area of law just because they want to move. Like mm-hmm. you have to really, really want to move so much that that's why. But you better be happy with the ta- practice of law that you're doing. Right. Uh, because that's what you're going to be doing every day. You're going to be in an office like the one we're sitting in right now. You're yeah. not going to be in Kensington Market studying your law in the yeah. weekdays. You're going to be sitting in an office grinding out a lot of hours in the beginning at least. So you have to really be prepared to enjoy what you're doing. Yeah, no, for sure. Another question just popped into my head. Like in an alternative scenario, if you weren't hired back and the decision did not change, what do you think you would have been doing? I was lucky. I had randomly gotten an interview at a Bay Street firm right after, like by luck, mm-hmm. by applying uh, to the position. So, I mean, that might have worked out. I don't know how long I would have stayed at that firm, though. <laughs> <laughs> scenario. But I'm sure something would have worked out. Yeah. Right? I have uh, no way to predict it, but I'm 100% something would have worked out because so many opportunities come you just have to put yourself before them you have to make sure you apply for them even if they mm-hmm. say one to three years of experience and you're you just articled who cares yeah. apply and write a very pithy letter about how you have more experience than the guy who has one to three years of experience or the girl that has one to three years of experience find a way to be convincing and storytelling build a relationship with those people and you'll be surprised you'll be led into all kinds of opportunities that uh, you might have thought were not available to you before so definitely, I don't think much else would have would have changed in that regard. I'd probably still be doing something similar to what I'm doing now. Yeah, for sure. It sounds like you really love your job. And <laughs> the overall theme I'm getting from everything that you're saying today is that happiness always comes first. <laughs> yeah, happiness comes first. It doesn't mean that it, it isn't impeded by the 238 emails I have waiting in my inbox right now. <laughs> yeah. it, it's always the difference between the destination and the road. Mm-hmm. The destination is what you have in mind. The road is what you prepare for to get there. The road is obviously not going to be perfect the harder the destination, the more difficult the road might be. So people who think that happiness is both meant to be something that is the destination and it needs to be in your mind on the road so that you don't end up veering so far off of it that it's no longer your destination, right? But the road will be difficult. There will be days you work a lot. Two weeks ago, for the first time, I did an all-nighter and I hadn't done one of those. Ever? No, I ever, yeah. I had done it once or twice maybe in the past. I never did them in university, but as a lawyer, I think I did them maybe once or twice. You're not always doing the flashy work that you're doing, but you have to keep the destination in mind. And if you realize your work is so different that it's putting you off course from the destination, then that's a problem, right? Mm -hmm. That's an issue. You can't be doing that. So it's always just understanding that it's not meant to be a walk in a rose garden to get to the rose garden, right? It's meant to be a little bit difficult. Right, Um, and there's some thorns and bushes along the way. Yeah, (laughs) exactly, precisely, yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time, and it was a pleasure having you, and we hope to see you back in Vancouver sometime. No, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for tuning into the Faculty BC podcast. Visit our website at facultbc.ca and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn at FacultBC. We hope you enjoyed our episode today and stay tuned for the next guest. If you have guest speaker suggestions, please email us at membership at facultbc.ca.